This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the RIP Coupons episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. My colleague Emily Peck is also here. Hello, hello. Elizabeth Spires is also here. Hello. Elizabeth, have you used a coupon recently? No, not, not, in, not since I was in college. Have you bought anything on sale recently? Yes. This is what we're going to talk about, the move away from coupons and towards things being on sale, partly because there's more inventories, which we'll talk about in the Slate Plus. We're going to also talk about Jean-Michel Basquiat figs, because, you know, I'm an art market geek, so I love talking about that kind of thing. There is a font angle. And we're going to talk about the implications of the Roe versus Wade overturning at the Supreme Court. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Last week, we had an amazing episode with Steph and Al all about skyscrapers, which was great, but it did mean that we couldn't talk about the big news of the week, which was the Roe versus Wade overturning by the Supreme Court. And I'm kind of glad that we waited a week on this one because, Emily, you've basically been spending the past week actually reporting this story, and you can answer all of my questions on this. Uh, well, (laughs) so the Supreme Court overturned the federal constitutional right to abortion and the news is moving really quickly and states are reacting in different, all different kinds of ways. So I can answer some of your questions, Felix, but some questions are quite literally not answerable at the moment. Only time will tell. So let's start with the ones that we can answer, or at least I hope that we can answer. There's been a lot of talk about big companies who self-insure, and they're preempted by federal regulations. And so basically, if they want to keep on covering abortion as healthcare coverage, they can do so. But for smaller companies who actually buy health insurance from health insurers, that's not the case. In the states where abortion has now been outlawed or is about to be outlawed, do those companies now no longer offer abortion as part of their health insurance? In fact, they're not allowed to. Am I right about that? I mean, it's a really crazy, I'm going to use the word crazy. It's a really convoluted landscape, broadly speaking, with health insurance. You already mentioned big companies, most of the Fortune 500, if not all the Fortune 500 is self-insured, meaning they like pay the cost of health care for their employees, and then they just outsource the benefits management, but they're actually paying for it. And that means the federal government is in charge of regulating them so they can go ahead and pay for abortion coverage. And many of them do. They're not out there advertising it, although some have made these big statements that they'll pay for abortion travel. And that's a whole other can of worms that I've reported on. Okay. So then shifting to the smaller businesses that you mentioned, Felix, that actually just buy insurance and are more closely regulated by the states. Most of those states already had laws in place prohibiting insurance companies from covering abortion. So The short answer is I don't know if a lot of small businesses have made a big change lately. They probably do what they do already. And I suspect, though I have not nailed this down, that many probably weren't covering abortion. And the the bigger picture is you might hear all these companies making great statements like Tesla or Facebook or Amazon saying they'll pay for abortion travel and no, 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 no. 
But at the end of the day, one study found 69% of women are getting abortions and paying out of pocket for them. So the insurance piece really doesn't matter. Because those women tend not to work for big companies with benefits and you know, they just don't have employer-provided health insurance anyway? Or is it because, as you said, in many states, small employers who buy insurance aren't even allowed to, pro- to provide that? Yeah, I think it's because most people who get abortions are low income and are probably covered by Medicaid if they have insurance at all. It's probably Medicaid, and in most states, Medicaid isn't going to cover your abortion because the Hyde Amendment, which is a federal law prohibits federal money being used to pay for abortions. Um, A few states override that and pay for the abortion care out of state coffers. But TLDR, if you're a low-income woman, you're not going to be able to get health insurance that covers abortion. You weren't able to before, and you certainly aren't going to be able to now. Does that make sense? It's so It does. It sounds to me like (laughs) in terms of, you know, health care and access to care, kind of not much has changed on a sort of overnight basis in terms of what's covered. What has changed is just like whether there are abortion clinics in your state that are open. Yes. And I guess what's changed are those announcements from the company saying, you know, we'll cover the travel benefits and things like that. But I think that is marginal considering how many women get this care without insurance anyway. And another thing maybe that's changed is the calculus that employers are making when they consider whether or not to offer this coverage because soon, you know, they could be potentially the lawyers I spoke to really, no one knows anything. Don't think that anyone knows anything, but it's not clear. Like employers could be criminally liable for aiding and abetting care in some of these States. Texas legislators have already threatened like Lyft, for example, and any other company doing the travel benefit, you know, paying for a woman to go out of state to get care. So I think there is a little bit of fear too. And I'm very curious what Elizabeth has to say. Yeah, well, I remember, you know, we talked about this when the Texas ban went into effect and Citibank had said they were going to pay for travel if employees needed an abortion. But, you know, now you're really going to see the systemic effects of this. And there are a lot of cases where you need an abortion because you're having a medical emergency, an ectopic pregnancy or a placental abruption, in which case being able to go out of state to travel is, is sort of irrelevant because you need to get care immediately or you could die. So I feel like when the Texas ban went into place, it was part of, you know, Citigroup trying to reassure employees who were based there that, you know, they were prepared for what was going to happen. But, you know, it's clear now that I don't think anybody really is. I saw some sort of like cynical takes that were like, well, companies are offering these travel benefits so they can stay where they are. In other words, the more extreme thing to do if a law like a Texas law gets passed and you're a Citibank or a Tesla is say, well, we're out of here. We're not we're not going to stay in the state anymore. It's not safe for women. But instead, you know, they're doing this travel benefit. I think that's really a cynical way of looking at it. And I don't know. I'm cynical, but I'm not that cynical. But there is a question, like, if you're an employer, are you going to have your female employees travel to a state like Texas? What if they're pregnant? What if you don't even know they're pregnant and something happens and they need care and they can't access it in these states? Dick Sporting Goods said that they would pay for abortion travel. And somebody tweeted, you know, if you're working at Dick Sporting Goods... How horrible is it that you might have to tell your manager that you need an abortion? You know? Is that necessary? I mean, like again, we we don't know what the protocols are, yeah. and we don't know like 
whether you need to tell your manager, whether you need to tell HR, whether it can all be done through the health insurance company. All of this is a big question mark and a big unknown, I think. For the travel benefit, up to a certain amount that can be handled through the insurance provider and you can have a relative expectation of privacy. If the money they reimburse you for exceeds a certain amount, then that might be handled as income. So then more people inside your company are going to know that you did it, if that makes sense. So it really depends on how much money you're going to spend on the travel. I think you probably can have some expectation of privacy in a larger company to just say, like, I need two days off. And you don't have to say why. And you mentioned about sending people to states. This is the other thing that people have been talking about a lot. What happens to in-person conferences in these states? And people mention South by Southwest a lot, which I just noticed is having a conference in Sydney, Australia, which might be a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, I mean, conferences do move, right? The big Web Summit conference moved from Dublin to Lisbon. It is not inconceivable that conferences, you know, who don't want attendees to put themselves at risk if they happen to be pregnant will just move, especially out of states like Texas. Yeah, I think South by Southwest had said after the SB8 law was passed, they made a statement like they don't like the law, but they're going to stay in Texas and fight or something like that. And I don't think they've said anything about the Supreme Court case yet, but it does seem like a natural question to ask. I guess the reason I'm going down this road is because I'm trying to work out Like, where are the first ripple effects and consequences of this in the business world that we're likely to see? You know, is there going to be something visible or is the counterfactual going to be so unknowable that we'll never really know how much of an effect this had? I think it's going to be visible pretty quickly because people are going to die, especially in larger companies. The likelihood that somebody you know is affected by it is pretty high if you're in one of these states. Let's just run that forwards a bit. So let's say that happens and you're in one of these states and you know someone who, you know, dies or you're an employer in one of those states and one of your employees dies. Are you saying that is going to be a sort of forcing mechanism, that that is going to end up forcing companies to move out of state or something like that? I think it could. I think if they begin to view it as a real liability to be in those states, I think the incentives to relocate parts of your company are are pretty high. So when you say you think that we're going to see these effects pretty quickly, like I'm going to sort of like push you for a prediction, what kind of effects do you think within what kind of time frame are we going to see? I think it's going to be more of a gradual response. You know, when people, when recruiters begin finding that, you know, women who they want to recruit are telling them, you know, I can't relocate to Texas because it's Texas and I'm childbearing age. I think eventually those things are going to filter into corporate policy. I actually don't think so. I think most of the places where you're going to see abortion, you know, outright banned or even more severely restricted had already made it really hard to get abortions. There was one clinic in Mississippi, right, before this ruling, and now that clinic's going to close. It was already, there were a lot of these trap laws that made it really hard to get access to care, and women were working in all of these places already. And in a way, it's not much is going to change for a, a lot of women in a lot of those places. And I think the long-term effects to like women's labor force participation might be interesting to watch, but I think that's going to take time to sort of roll out, you know, over the years. And a lot of places in the United States are already 
really hostile to women. Women get fired for being pregnant or their jobs are made so uncomfortable they wind up leaving for getting pregnant or they don't get paid leave. Or I mean, I don't know. Like it's already a pretty hostile environment. So I don't see how this causes some kind of like corporate sea change, except for it might make companies more reluctant to cover certain benefits. But that's again, like at the margins, because most women aren't using those benefits to get this kind of care anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think this also affects other types of care that are sort of adjacent to repro rights. And the courts have said, or Thomas has said that he's interested in going after contraception next. I don't think that this is the the end of what's going to happen. I will go on the record saying there's no way anyone is banning contraception. It's just not going to happen. Like you can have a, a wacko Catholic on the Supreme Court, but the fact is that these laws, these anti-abortion laws, are all promulgated by Protestants, not by Catholics, and the Protestants don't give a shit about contraception. Oh, I hope you're right. <laughs> but, you know, the, to go back to Emily's point about abortion clinics, in the emergency situations that I'm describing, you're not going to an abortion clinic to get an abortion. If you have an ectopic pregnancy, when Roe was still in existence, there would be no debate about whether you would be treated. And now, because the rules are unclear and there's new liability for medical professionals who do perform abortions, you know, even a delay can be the difference between life and death. So I I think that has some ripple effects that we're not really prepared for. Yeah, maybe. But at the corporate level, though, I don't know. Well, I think at the societal level, and I, I think that does filter into corporate life to some extent. To some extent. But I look at Poland, you know, which has banned abortion in a very extreme way and has caused deaths and is, you know, causing a major societal upheaval. And I'm not sure how much that those ripple effects have made their way into Polish corporations. Well, I'll be the the alarmist. I I, I think it's going to be bad. (laughs) Let's switch gears here. Emily, you found a wonderful story about coupons. Yes, I discovered in an obscure publication known as the New York Times. <laughs> oh, my hometown newspaper. Yeah, your local rag. Yeah, a wonderful story by Lydia DePillis about coupons and their decline over the years. They were declining in use before the pandemic, and the pandemic seems to have really nailed in the coffin for these things. The percentage of people who redeem coupons has gone from 3.5% to 0.5%. There's less, I think, Felix has a chart. He Did you run the chart yet? Let me just be a bit more clear on that statistic. It's not the percentage of people who re- redeem coupons. It's the percentage of coupons that are redeemed. Back in the oh. 80s, if you were a supermarket and you printed out a bunch of coupons, you would expect about 3.5% of those coupons to get redeemed. About you know five or six years ago, that was about 1%. And now it's about half a percent. So the benefit to you as a supermarket of even printing the coupons has been evaporating because so few of them ever get cashed in. And so then you just stop printing them and it becomes this sort of death spiral. So yeah, we're down to like a mere 159 billion coupons a year being printed. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to die, but it's going to take a minute. But yeah, it used to be a massive business. There used to be this huge subsidiary of News Corp called News America. This is the Rupert Murdoch company. You know, everyone knows about Fox News and the New York Post and that kind of thing. But the most profitable part of his empire was News America, which was the company that printed coupon inserts. And that was just a license to print money until it wasn't. I love that part of the story of the decline of coupons is the rise of women in the workforce, which 
I can connect back to our first segment because <laughs> with abortion illegal, there'll be fewer women in the workforce. So perhaps that will bring back the coupon. But essentially, when there were more stay-at-home mothers, they had more time to like clip the coupons, save the coupons, remember to bring the coupons with them when they go to the store. But the economists that Lydia quotes in her piece are saying, you know, people just want no friction. They don't want to be bothered with coupon clipping. They just want to get to the store, get their stuff and get out. This is the thing that that Lydia didn't get into. And I really want to find out that the friction is the point, right? The whole point of coupons is that they're a pain in the ass that you have to like read the flyers and clip the coupons and hand them over and annoy the people behind you in line and all of that (laughs) kind of stuff. You make it deliberately difficult for people so that the people who are relatively price insensitive don't bother doing it. And the people who otherwise wouldn't buy that product end up buying that product. So you wind up selling extra products to the people who wouldn't otherwise buy it, but you wind up not giving the discount to the people who would otherwise buy it. If there is no friction, there's no point in having a coupon. It's just like, you may as well just discount the price. I agree with that. But I think, you know, some of the shift is just that people have been acculturated into, you know, a sort of digital environment where they get everything instantly and don't have to make very much effort. My mom was a prolific coupon clipper, and she was the kind of person who would remember if she had a five cent off coupon that was 30 years old and she'd dig it out of a drawer. And for her, that was like, you know, part of it was this was just built into her shopping routine. And the supermarket inserts were also just marketing, straight up marketing. They weren't necessarily, you know, I agree with Felix, they're mostly not designed to be redeemed. But now I'm not even sure it's cost effective to put coupons into a marketing insert just for marketing purposes. There are so many other avenues to market to people. Yeah, there are all kind of apps now that you can use when you buy things. And there's like club cards at the supermarket that people use, you know. We have a colleague at Axios called Kelly Tycho, who seems to be like the queen of all apps and discount hacks and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, yeah, I use this app and I save thousands of dollars on my grocery bills. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I used to clip out coupons all the time. And then I would just leave them in my apartment and go to the store and forget that they existed. (laughs) But the act of clipping them felt really virtuous because I was like, I'm going to save 50 cents and I buy that anyway. So it's good on me. But then I just didn't I didn't do it. It takes a lot of like planning and I don't know, mental, mental work that like, who has time for? The price sensitivity thing really does work. When I was a student at Glasgow University, the Guardian newspaper would send me these books of coupons, which would give me like 20 pence off a copy of the Guardian. And I would like assiduously make sure that I had my Guardian coupon whenever I bought my daily paper. And it was an amazing like brand loyalty thing. It really made it much more likely that I would buy the paper any given day. And it was a pain in the ass, but it was also something that because I was a student and I had lots of time and, you know, I really cared about that 20p, you know, I was perfectly willing to put that time into making sure that I saved that money. And then, you know, you start actually earning money. You know, like, I really don't have time to save 20p. The article does point out that during the Great Recession, there was sort of a coupon resurgence because people lost their jobs and indeed had time to cut coupons and incentive. And then there became some people for whom couponing was a hobby and a pastime and almost an extreme sport. I remember running stories in HuffPost like back in the early 2010s where people would brag that they got their whole grocery bill was covered 
buy coupons because they like planned it out strategically and like they got a hundred dollars off or something. And it seems like there's potential for them to come back in style now, not just because of how, you know, more women will be forced to have babies and stuff like that and be home with them, but because, you know, inflation is pushing up food costs so much. And I think the lesson of what we're seeing is that inflation doesn't do it. You need unemployment. Well, we get the jobs numbers next week, so we'll see. Hire a bunch of people so we can bring back coupons. <laughs> but I mean, Felix has a point because if the last time couponing was in was during the Great Recession when unemployment is high and it's been declining for the past decade as unemployment's reached like historic lows, then maybe that's that's the missing ingredient. I think that could be true, but don't you think like you have to get into the habit of doing it and you know devoting that mental energy yeah. to it yeah as a society we've lost the habit and it's not coming back and i think coupons are dead and you know sales are not dead like you still have price promotions but those don't have that like lovely sort of targeting aspect to them if you put something on sale then everyone who buys it gets a discount and so you're like shit i've lost all of that potential revenue from all of the purchases <laughs> in high school i was a cashier at walmart in an area where people did use coupons a lot so maybe like every third customer who'd come through my line would have just a big stack of coupons and the only time i ever remember getting screamed at by customers when somebody would whip out a coupon that had an expiration date that had already passed and then I'd scan it, the machine wouldn't take it, and then the customer would get mad. So I, I feel like there are probably a lot of retail workers who are breathing a sigh of relief that they don't have to do that as much anymore. <laughs> the other data point this week that points to the death of the coupon is the insanely bad financial results from Bed Bath & Beyond, whose share price is like almost negative at this point. And there is a store that lived and died on the strength of its coupon. It was great when people were using the coupons and then they stopped using the coupons and then the store died. I'm not sure it's a complete causal relationship, but I like to think that it's part of it. Thank you, Felix. I've been thinking about that all week myself, especially after reading that Bank of America analysts visited some Bed Bath & Beyond stores where they claim that the air conditioning wasn't on and that became a big story in the business press this week. Is Bed Bath & Beyond turning off the air conditioner because it's hot out? The store said absolutely not, but the Bank of America analysts, they don't lie, so I don't know what's going on. I can tell you that this morning I was on the Bed Bath & Beyond website and they're having like a really big sale. So if you haven't already bought everything you need over the past two years, 50% off and you don't need a coupon. I feel like <laughs> that's a nice little Slate Plus segment, actually. We can talk a little bit about have we bought everything we need and is that why <laughs> inventories are going up? Uh, <laughs> but before we get to Slate Plus, we have to talk about fake Jean-Michel Basquiat paintings in Orlando, Florida, which is just the most glorious story. And we had a listener request to talk about this glorious story it involves fonts there is a font aspect here and so like obviously <laughs> if there's a font story and a basket story then and an authentication story then i'm all over this one so yeah the story goes that a bunch of basket paintings were found in a storage locker and they used to belong to some guy who lived upstairs from Basquiat or something like that, and he bought them for $5,000. Anyway, he is on the record. He gave like an affidavit to the FBI saying, I've never met the guy in my life. I suddenly never bought any paintings from him. The person who used to own the storage locker I didn't stop the person who bought the contents of the storage locker from going around a bunch of Basquiat experts and getting them authenticated as Basquiat's. And then 
and this is the really weird bit, persuading the Orlando Museum of Art to like run an exhibit of all of these paintings. One thing that is very common in the art world is for people to quote unquote discover some artwork that they claim is a Basquiat or a Warhol or Leonardo or Velasquez or you name it. And then everyone just more or less rolls their eyes and says, yeah, whatever. Once in a blue moon, it turns out to be real, and then it sells for a gazillion dollars at auction, but most of the time, you know, people just ignore them. In this case, it was harder to ignore because there was a large museum show involved, and the museum director was adamant that these things were genuine and seemed to have a major dog in the fight for reasons that no one entirely understood and would send mean emails to the authenticators when the authenticators started saying actually yeah this is a bit weird i'm not sure about this he'd send emails saying like shut up stay in your lane do you want me to go public with the amount of money we paid you you know this kind of stuff he wound up getting fired after the fbi raided the exhibit and confiscated all of the paintings which by the way are clearly fake and this is where the fonts come in they were painted on the back of like cardboard and one of the pieces of cardboard that they were painted on the back of was a fedex box and one of the fedex boxes had a printing on it saying like a fixed label here and the font used to say a fixed label here didn't even exist until six years after basquiat died so that's pretty cut and dried What's crazy about that is I was reading the story from February about this exhibit, a Basquiat exhibit, and how people are questioning if they're real or not. And in the story, the February one, they say one of the paintings, at least, isn't real because it's on this cardboard that appears to be, you know, more recent. And, like, the guy, his name is DeGroft, the one who was now fired, is like, yeah, we can't explain that part, but the rest of them are totally real. And I'm like... How did this go on? I mean, that was February. What is it now? June? Like, wh- what What took so long? And why is everyone so shocked? It was all right there in the article. Well, so no <laughs> one's shocked that, that they're fake. Everyone thought that they were fake, except for, like, the guy at the museum and the guy trying to sell them for $100 million. <laughs> the shock, I think, is that the FBI raided the show and confiscated the paintings. Mm. This is the news, is that you actually had, like, federal law enforcement getting involved at this point. Because they were like, this isn't just good faith people getting swindled or persuaded that something is real when in fact it's fake this is actually a criminal conspiracy going on here or that seems to be the subtext and so that's Mm. why the director got fired yeah even for the art world that's that's a lot of drama the interesting subtext to all this is that for most contemporary artists modern contemporary artists up until relatively recently none of these controversies would ever happen because if there was any artwork that was purportedly by an artist. You would just take that artwork to the artist's estate for authentication. And then the artist's estate would either say, yes, this is genuine, and put it in the catalogue raisonné and, you know, say to the world and all the auction houses, like, this is a genuine work. Or they would say, no, this is not genuine. And then that was the end of it. And that was a pretty efficient and effective way that the art world worked for many, many years up until, I want to say like 10, 15 years ago, when what happened is that a bunch of people who would take paintings to artists' estates and then be told they were fake would sue the estates. And they would be like, I had this million dollar painting, you said it was fake, and now it's worthless, so you owe me a million dollars. And these lawsuits very rarely went anywhere for obvious reasons, but they were very expensive for the estates to fight. And sometimes the estates actually lost. And so 
as a result of this, the estates pretty much en masse over the course of a few years all just stopped authenticating anything. So instead of being able to just go up to the Basquiat estate and say, can you say whether these are fake or not, and just sort the matter right there, now the Basquiat estate, like most estates, no longer offers that service. And because they no longer offer that service, it's like the Wild West out there, and anyone can find some random art history professor somewhere and say, like, can you authenticate this? And that piece of paper is worth as much as anything else. And so that's how it's even possible that these controversies can come up in the first place. Is Basquiat's work more susceptible? I think in my reading, there had been some other dust up over fake Basquiat's in the recent past, right? Is his more susceptible? Is it any artist really that's well known that this happens to now? Yeah, I mean, it's really just a function of how valuable your art is. The Basquiat auction record, I think, is in the region of $100 million. So, you know, Basquiat's are inherently very valuable. So if you fake a Basquiat and people believe that it's real, you can make millions. And so that just makes it much more enticing to fake a Basquiat than to fake some artist no one's ever heard of and you can sell it for 10 bucks. There's got to be a middle ground where you fake something of like a middling artist that won't be as controversial because they're not as well known, but they're still somewhat you can get a good price for it, but you won't draw as much attention. I mean, there's got to be like... I don't don't think better. that doesn't happen. Every museum <laughs> in the world is showing fakes. It's totally really? a thing. Absolutely. Every museum in the world shows fake art. We're all going to see fake art. And now it's Not paying a ton at the Met. Yeah, the price of Met admission <laughs> is now up to $30. And yeah, it's 100% certain that there's something in, on exhibit in the Met right now that's a fake. We just don't know what it is. Does it matter? Maybe it's fine. Who cares? Well, the Met cares. If people enjoy the art, <laughs> maybe it's fine. Yeah, as long as you don't know that it's fake, it doesn't impinge on your enjoyment. Friends of my grandparents were big art collectors and had a little Paul Clay painting that was in their bedroom for many years, and they loved it. And then at one point, they had their art collection authenticated, and it turned out that the Paul Clay was a fake. And it was very yeah. sad. And they said, we still love this painting, but it's, we don't quite love it the same way anymore because it's not real. That's folk artist from a... Alabama named Moe's T. It does these sort of very bright paintings. They're kind of simple in their structure. And when I was growing up, people had forged Moe's T's on their walls all the time. Like people would just go out and find somebody who was a halfway decent painter and they would just try to replicate it. And I don't, I'm not sure that there was like a secondary market for it, but it was a thing that people would do to feel like they had something resembling a piece of recognizable art on their walls that was local. You see, I don't think that's a fake. I think that's like a replica, which is different. Like, I used to do that. I used to have like a fake Kasuth and a fake Terrell and a fake Sandback. And there's a lot of sort of conceptual art, which is quite easy to replicate. And it's fun to sort of make your own version of it. But so long as you don't present it as being real, it's no harm, no foul. This is interesting. This week, Margaret Keene died. They made like a Tim Burton movie based on her, right? Her husband allegedly had been painting these paintings of children with like big eyes that people really liked, but like art critics thought were kitschy and bad. But it turned out all along this man wasn't painting the paintings. It was the wife was doing it. She was like locked up in the basement painting the paintings and he was passing them off as his own. And it seemed to me reading the obituary that once it came out that she was the one doing the paintings, everyone was like, these paintings are amazing. And like all of a sudden the paintings weren't <laughs> kitschy anymore. So there's more to the paintings than the actual paintings. Absolutely. Authorship matters. Anyone who tells you that the only thing that matters in the painting is like 
what's on the canvas and not like whose hand painted it has no idea mm-hmm. how the art world works. But we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number this week? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you want to know what it is? Okay, I'll no, tell you. No, all right, tell me then. All right, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's $2.3 million. That is the amount of money in streaming royalties estimated that Kate Bush has earned from her 1985 song, Running Up That Hill, which is made Love popular again. That. Good for I'm her. so happy about this. It is the happiest, happiest story of the summer. Kate Bush is suddenly rolling in cash because Netflix? Netflix. She, her song is in Stranger Things season four, which is like Netflix's biggest show right now. And it like, it's, I think the most streamed song for a while, or it has been, it's on the billboard charts. And Kate Bush happens to own the copyright to the master recording. So like almost all of the royalty money is going right to her. And one estimate I read, she made a million dollars just from streams between June 16th and June 23rd, which is a week. So good job, Kate Bush. Also, it's a banger of a song and I love it. And the only thing I don't like about it is the Zoomers, the kids coming out and saying, we discovered this song. No one knew about this song before we discovered it on Stranger Things. It's like, no, everyone knew about this song. This is a great (laughs) song. We all know it very well, but we're very happy that it's back. Just the yes. continued erasure of Gen X. That's true. <laughs> well, we didn't give Kate, Gen X didn't give Kate Bush the $2.3 million. That really was the Zoomers, I think. I will tell you that I, my wife and I flew to London to see her show at the Hammersmith Apollo a few yeah. years ago. And, you know, the tickets sold out in five seconds, but a friend of mine in London wrote a script to grab the tickets as soon as they came on sale. We had amazing <laughs> seats and it was just absolutely batshit and wonderful and brilliant and yeah i mean i feel like a bunch of my money has made its way into kate bush's pocket you know (laughs) probably more from me personally than any zoomer has paid by streaming her song but collectively you're right the zoomers have come through for kate bush and thank you zoomers for doing that my number is 51 percent that is the proportion of murders that were solved in 2020 it is now basically a coin flip if you Mm. get killed that the police will work out who did it that was 61 percent in 2014 it's come down a lot and it was 83 percent in 1965 so there's just long secular decline in the proportion of murders that are solved and no one really understands why so are you telling people to go out and do murder they have like a yeah absolutely go out and do a murder you only have a 50 (laughs) percent chance of getting caught the timing is good for the moment elizabeth what's your number my number is well, two numbers, 299 and 899, and that's the range of what you would pay for a Balanchaga hoodie in Meta right now. A lot of wait, luxury wait, okay, brands so are dating. Wait, 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 all right. We need to, we need to massively, <laughs> massively rewind here. First of all, what are the units here? Are we talking dollars? Are dollars. we talking Bitcoin, Ethereum? But dollars. dollars. And this is for a digital hoodie, not a real oversized So a Balenciaga Balanchaga. hoodie in the Metaverse cost somewhere between three and nine dollars depending on who's selling it yeah well the pricing i found were for balanchaga products tom brown and prada and i couldn't find the individual pricing but that's the range of stuff you can buy in the meta avatar store and is this sold by the companies themselves yes do you know anyone who has purchased one of these items no listeners (laughs) if you know anyone who has purchased one of these items please write in and tell us what you're doing in the metaverse that requires a Balenciaga hoodie. 
Just for reference, an actual real-world Balenciaga hoodie retails for $1,250. Oh, cheap. You can afford luxury goods in the metaverse. This is definitely an aspect of the metaverse that is superior to the real world, right? In the real world, you need to pay thousands of dollars to get a genuine Balenciaga hoodie. In the metaverse, you can get it for like less than a tenner. And it's got the same branding, which is the main point. And it's legitimately legit. It's genuine. So yeah, let's all just move to the metaverse and the cost of our social signaling goes way down. What does a Balenciaga hoodie even look like? Does it look like a regular hoodie? Yeah, what color is it? special on it? There's more than one, but they're all designed to be kind of oversized. Like they have a certain look, or at least the real world ones do. I'm not sure that it's that distinguishable in in a meta avatar, though. On which note, I think we will wrap up Slate Money for this week. Thank you very much to Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada for producing. Thank you to all of you guys for writing in on slatemoney at slate.com. And we will be back next week with another Slate Money. We also need to do a Slate Plus on this whole question of inventories, because that was one of the economic data points that came out this week, was that inventories are up, which is a sign that companies aren't selling as much stuff as they used to be. And here's my hypothesis, Elizabeth, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, is that over the two years since the beginning of the pandemic, we have bought all of the stuff that we could possibly use. (laughs) And there is no more stuff that we need or want. And that's why we're not buying any stuff. And even if they put it on 50% off, you're like, I already have that stuff. There's no point in me getting another stuff, (laughs) even if it's cheap. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. There are certainly things that I bought during the pandemic that I'm not going to go buy another one of. I, I have a desk that I bought because I had not been working at home historically. Um, But also, I think people got used to not spending during the pandemic, so they're still probably a little reluctant to make big purchases, especially. Yeah, I think people are, you're seeing a switch now in the data from stuff to services. People are stopping buying, they're not buying patio furniture anymore, they're buying plane tickets, they're going to restaurants, they're not buying like new cast iron cookware, they're, you know, going out to eat, stuff like that, I think is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Cast iron cookware is a really good example because you buy a cast iron pan that thing lasts for centuries someone makes a new cast iron pan you're not gonna be like oh i need a new cast iron pan no you don't because the one you have is perfectly good and it's probably better than the new one anyway it's better seasoned what stuff did you perma buy during the uh the pandemic that you're definitely not going to buy again i'm gonna make a little plug here since we're in the safe space of slate plus a cast iron pan which is ludicrously expensive but absolutely wonderful like cast iron plants the great thing about them is they're dirt cheap and they work great right but if you're weird like me you get one from this company called lancaster which is so much more expensive than like a standard lodge pan it's really hard to justify but the thing is it's smoother it's nicer it's much more naturally non-stick and most importantly it's lighter So you can pick it up much more easily with one hand. And I love that pan so much. It is wonderful. (laughs) It's going to, you know, I don't know who's going to inherit it, but that thing is going to last, as I say, centuries. You know, we had Le Crusette. This is the most bougie conversation of Slate Plus ever, but we had a Le Crusette cast iron pot. And it chipped on the bottom. Was it was it enamel? 
it was cast iron and enamel. So the enamel. Yeah, chips. the enamel can chip. Yeah. yeah. So I feel I after that I was lodged all the way. I was like, I'm just getting cheap ones. Like, why would I spend more for something that falls apart? You know. So I'm all about the lodge, and I am not convinced I can handle the heavier weight of the pan, Felix. I don't need a lightweight. That's because you're stronger than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably it. Yeah. I'm very weak-wristed, Emily. Weak. <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, I think the stores have too much stuff. And it's so interesting to read stories about that in the business press because the business press is like, it's so bad. There's too much inventory and this is so bad for the stock market and blah, blah, blah. And when I read it, I'm like, oh, there's going to be sales. This is great. There just needs to be a shifting of perspective sometimes in those stories, don't you think? It's not all about the stock market. Yeah. No, The this is the problem with much financial journalism is that it Everything gets written through a lens of if stocks go down, that's bad. But that's not always bad. Sometimes it's good. Yeah, you get like money off on duvets. If you're a young person who's saving for retirement, you want the stocks to be cheap. Right. Because the stocks are on sale, as are the cast iron pans and the sheets and the bed, bath and beyond And And the televisions. If you are the last person in America who needs a new television, then now's a good time to buy it. Is that it? Should we say goodbye to C+. Bye, Bye. C+.